so I am just setting that up. So today is Teachable Tuesday, Black Table Talk. It is all things black, black people, black concerns, black joy, black love, black issues, etc. And we have been reading a book entitled Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage. This book has been seriously insightful. Um, I think anyone who is trying to have a conversation in this day and in this hour centered around black women, um, what's, what is black women's responsibility? Um, I think if you're having any kind of conversation around black love, black relationships, um, women's expectations versus men's expectations, I think it would behoove you to pick this book up and read it because it really does dispel, good morning, it really does dispel a lot of the chatter that we have been hearing about black people and their love lives and their relationships with one another, whether or not uh, black men are fighting for their love relationships or black women are fighting for their love relationships. It really does put everything into context. Conversations that people have been having around welfare and how welfare affected black families across the United States. Uh, we completed a chapter on that, very, very insightful. The fact that the system was not made for black women at all, and that for the first 25 to 30 years of that system, black women were not even allowed to participate. Um, things like that, that people need to know when they're having this conversation around whether or not it's black women's fault that the family is in the disarray uh, that it is. We also need to talk about things like the wealth gap and how the wealth gap is playing a part in um, the relationships between black men and black women. We also need to talk about the narrative that's being pushed, you know, that if a black woman is making more money, that she is not going to um, want to be married to a black man. You really need to understand the wealth gap, the disparities that have happened there. Um, why is one of our counterparts, black women, being pushed to the forefront while her counterpart is being sort of pushed behind? That is a, a kind of warfare, right? To pit you against each other rather than you coming together and, and working together, really. But right now we are in the chapter entitled Black Love in Captivity. And we have been looking at the prison industrial complex and how that has played a role in the separation of black families, the separation of children from their fathers, uh, the separation of wives and fiancés and girlfriends from their mates or their potential mates. So we're kind of come back into this um, this talk today and we're going to continue to look at what is happening in that in that prison industrial complex and we're going to talk about barriers to returning home today and then um, we'll give some time for you to share if you would like to you'll know if you're able to come on screen if you see a green camera icon next to your name that should enable you if you want to be invited in to speak 
that lets you know that you have the ability to uh, come in and offer your um, feedback and your response to the, the words on today. So we just finished talking about the process of people visiting their loved ones, I believe, at Rikers. And they talked about how they had to stand out lot outside for several hours, um, how disrespectfully they were treated, how they were almost seen as enemies uh, just in trying to visit their relatives, um, the kinds of searches that they would go through, that if you tried to ask a question, you would be you know, threatened with being sent home after you had been waiting it out for hours in line to see your loved one. So we're continuing from that point. Hubbard's expose invites us into a universe of endless violations of the body, soul, and psyche committed by the very civil servants empowered to prevent violations of the law and of persons. It's no wonder many wives not only experience stigma when their husbands go to prison, but also feel their husband's punishment has been imposed directly on the family. In the arena of romantic intimacy, this feeling is particularly true because both wives and husbands are denied the normal comforts and rewards of uninterrupted cohabitation. For wives such as Aisha, fortunate enough to have access to conjugal rights, they can at least look forward to the bittersweet experience of confronting the mood-wrecking security clearance procedures and enjoying some hours of romantic privacy with their husbands in a reserved trailer. Others without conjugal visitation privileges sometimes find other means to express the intimacy they deserve. It's not uncommon for couples to protest intimacy, intimacy deprivation by actually copulating in the public space of a visiting room. They usually try to hide behind vending machines or in restrooms to conceal their lovemaking. In one case, a couple consummated their marriage in Oklahoma in a visiting room with other couples as their lookouts and remember that day as a moment of daring that gave them hope for the future. But others feel no shame in assuming cuddling positions in the main visiting area that allow them to engage. One in inmate's wife not only confessed that she and her husband did this, but also admitted, I knew that the people who were visiting saw us way off in the corner. While some prison guards deliberately turn the other way during such moments, others respond tyrannically. Sociologist Megan Comfort reports that while conducting fieldwork at San Quentin, six lifers were placed in solitary confinement due to allegations by other prisoners that the men and their partners repeatedly engaged in illicit sex in the main line visiting room. Not all wives are ready, ready and willing to indulge in intimate acts this way. Many refuse to trade privacy for a compromised moment of pleasure, no matter how much they miss the warmth of their husband's bodies. They complain that such desperate attempts at sexual gratification are inappropriate and even gross. Some intentionally leave their children at home when visiting their husbands to avoid exposing them to such obscenities that could possibly go on. Incarceration in the cultures of surveillance and survival, and it produces punish everyone, punishes everyone in an inmate's family who cares to remain connected. Marriages, too, are severely punished because correctional control extends to wives' sexual, physical, and emotional bodies. The 10-year ordeal of managing a marriage under impossible conditions intensified when Tina's husband, Dante, was transferred to a private prison in the state of Ohio, far away from the Washington, D.C. metro area 
where Tina and her children were living. The decision from on high to transfer Dante, a common practice in the industry, robbed her of the one ritual she had to cushion the blow of her husband's absence, regular visits to see him behind bars. Our life is on hold. That's what I feel like. And being as though our life is on hold, I really can't spread my horizons without my husband. I accepted his wrongdoing because I just wanted our family to rejoin and reunite. Tina, an ambitious and willful student and working mother, did not have the liberty to travel to visit Dante at his new facility, and this fact devastated her to the core. All I ever do is hope that it's over. All I can do is hope and dream. But her enduring question remains, when is it going to manifest? When is it going to materialize? What if they keep him for the duration of his time? What does that leave me as his wife? Thinking back on it, Tina admitted, I went through it so bad when he went to Ohio, but I kept saying the whole time that I wasn't stressed, but because I was still functioning. I struggled through school because every week I was sick. Mentally, I was making myself sick. But Tina was not just mentally sick. She developed migraines and lost a tremendous amount of weight. Her doctor diagnosed her with anxiety induced by separation that his incarceration imposed on the marriage. Tina explained, family members actually saw how sick she was and word got back to him in prison. When Tina finally had a chance to visit him, he noticed right away with his own eyes that something was terribly wrong. Facing him through a glass divide, she recalled that he told her to pick up the phone. I picked up the phone and he said, look at you. I'm going to tell you just like this. As much as I love you and as much as I want you in my life, this thing has taken a toll like the way I see you looking. I want you to walk out that door and don't come back in here. Get yourself another person because you're killing yourself. Look at you. You've lost weight. Your eyes are sunken. You look terrible. So I was like, I'm okay. But he said, you're not okay. The dance of denial and protection performed by couples coping with incarceration only intensifies the stress consuming wives and husbands. When they meet for such limited windows of time per visit, many black wives admitting to concealing their woes from their incarcerated husbands. They prefer to discuss lighter matters that sustain a happy and hopeful mood. Incarcerated black husbands too have hidden their troubles behind bars from their wives when asked, how are you doing? What's wrong? Despite knowing that they have had to navigate a humiliating screening process just to make it past security to the visiting room, some even refused to see their wives if conflict with another inmate or a prison guard left them physically or emotionally wounded. Inmates often undergo reassignment to different prison facilities during their sentences, as was the case for Tina's husband, Dante. For no apparent reason at all, they are constantly moved far from their families, making visitations unduly difficult and even impossible for some. In one case, across 20 years of custody, T. Lawson had been relocated 11 times. His prison odyssey took him from Washington, D.C. to Kansas, Oklahoma, Indiana, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Washington State, North Dakota, Tennessee, Ohio, and Virginia. Now, where is the legislation for people to stop doing that? Can somebody um, introduce that legislation? How about that? Oh, and please, exercise the right that they are trying to take away from you on all levels and go vote today if you have not voted. With the heightened stress and loss of agency wives of incarcerated husbands experience, 
It's astounding that some report an improved quality of interactions with their husbands during imprisonment, which they testify enhances the overall health of their marriage. Women do find that they are able to love and remain married to men behind bars against the odds, and many credit the frequent exchange of letters as the source of their relationships. As one woman explained, I think that the strain that's been put on us has, been made, has made us closer. We don't have a choice but to communicate in ways and learn how to read each other. And I think we've done that. That's what's really different is that we're now more than friends because we don't have that intimacy. We don't know, we don't cuddle all day or anything like that. And I think you really have to be friends in order for your relationship to work. And I think you've got that, we've got that down. It's a good thing in a way that he is there because it has brought us closer. Another woman described the emotional fulfillment her partner's romantic imagination and letters upon letters brought her. Within one month, the couple shared a total of 100 letters, 45 scribed by her partner. We weren't able to touch or see each other, but being romantic with each other, he knows how to draw. He draws me roses instead of going out and buying me a dozen and sending them to the house. He draws me a dozen and sends them to the house. He draws me pictures with hearts with a rose through it and clouds in the ocean and everything. He draws how he feels and what he wishes he could give to me. These moving testaments are not necessarily representative of isolated experiences, yet far more women describe a life fraught with disappointment, loneliness, stigma, depleted resources, and perpetual adversity. They know the emptiness of deferred desires year in and year out. Wives of incarcerated men harbor what Asia expressed as a singular wish for a normal marriage, a different American marriage than the one this nation has arranged for far too many black couples. At the end of the 20th century, she wrote, when there were some people who more than anything else wanted the stock market to keep booming, and some who wanted to lose another 15 pounds, and some who wanted to become big stars in films, and some who wanted brand new sports utility vehicles, and some who wanted Clinton impeached, and some who wanted to rock hill figure gear daily, and some who wanted to write rhymes and make fat beats, and some who wanted their next $10 bag of whatever they could sniff, and in the time when most of us wanted cures for HIV and cancer, and a realistic way to keep our blood pressure down, the greatest of my own personal needs was for my husband to come home to me, she wrote. For Asia, there was nothing more pressing, nothing more needed in a world of trouble and disaster than Rashid's freedom and presence at home. But added hidden obstacles await to tie up black love, even after incarceration, comes to an end. Barriers to returning home. One of the greatest obstacles to reunification after black men are released from prison is the restriction that state and federal policies place upon assisted housing opportunities for ex-offenders. Just as public welfare departments and eugenics boards collaborated to ruin black girls and women's pursuit of love and marriage in the past, public housing authorities, the penal system, and the public welfare departments have also worked hand in hand to destroy black women's relationships with incarcerated black men. During the 1990s, the US Department of Housing and Urban Development issued regulations that empowered public housing agencies across the nation to prohibit convicted felons from participating in their programs. And although the Obama administration worked to reverse such regulations, ex-offenders are still refused housing based on their criminal backgrounds. 
when they are allowed to join family members already living in subsidized housing, many low-income Black women find themselves in the precarious position of having to provide shelter without adequate financial sustenance for their unemployed husbands or sons or fathers or partners. For the thousands charged with minor violations, they often are forced to pay exorbitant fees for ankle bracelets or other monitoring devices they must wear while awaiting trial or as a condition of their release from prison. A 2014 NPR survey discovered that 49 states, 49 states, allow or require the cost of monitoring devices to be passed along to the person who is ordered to wear it. A monitoring device which can easily cost $400 a month. The laws that encourage such, such housing restrictions serve to criminalize drug addicts and other ex-convicts long after they complete their sentences behind bars. Hence, they are paying twice for their offenses. And while the mid-90s saw the most venomous legislation passed to deny government-subsidized housing to ex-offenders, after the ratification of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1988, public housing authorities were compelled to even then to update their leases with clauses prohibiting leaseholders, their family members, and guests from engaging in criminal activity on or near public housing premises and declaring such criminal activity to be a cause for terminating the tenancy. Circumstances worsened in 1996 and 1998 when President Bill Clinton signed into law the Housing Opportunity Program Extension Act and the Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act. Federal and state housing authorities swiftly weaponized the law to exclude millions of previous drug offenders and criminals in general from establishing residency in federally assisted housing. Borrowing phrasing from the famous War on Drugs legislation, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development instituted what it labeled the toughest admission and eviction policy that HUD has implemented. HUD's one-strike-and-you're-out policy was unforgiving. As Bill Clinton announced in his January 23, 1996 State of the Union address, from now on, the rule for residents who commit crime and peddle drugs should be one strike and you're out. Ostensibly, this meant that one strike of just one person could displace an entire family, all members sharing a household with that offending party. In 1996 and 1998, acts specifically allowed for standardized screening and application processes that authorized the government to investigate the criminal backgrounds and drug offending and treatment histories of all applicants. In some cases, applicants with criminal backgrounds have been required to wait years to become eligible for public housing. While states and local housing authorities exercise discretion over how they would align these policies, just 12 months after the law was passed, 75% of the 1,818 housing authorities responding to a HUD survey indicated they had adopted the One Strike and You're Out initiative. Incentivized, because yes, they were incentivized to reject applicants with drug offenses in their past or other criminal activity on their record. Public housing agencies went from denying 9,835 applicants for housing to denying 19,405 applicants opportunities to access low-income housing within the first six months of the new dispensation. And we wonder why our nation has a homelessness problem.
Having an address, a stable place to lay one's head, is an essential pathway to productive citizenship and wealth building and often required for a job. However, since the late 1980s, elected officials invested in austere anti-drug and anti-crime policies, assuring the American electorate that they prioritized public safety. Through calculated efforts, they were determined to cleanse the nation of these dangerous criminals who preyed upon law-abiding citizens. The impact of anti-crime public housing policies has been devastating for poor black ex-convicts, many of whom are left to fend for themselves in an unforgiving world, alienated from most social service institutions. In a 2012 interview, Gavin, a convicted felon, explained the call and response nature of crime and punishment for black men with no place to live. Handicapped by their criminal records, they quite understandably cannot withstand the deluge of compounded criminal justice, public assistance, and social service policies toppling them like endless walls of dominoes. I am homeless, a grown man, and I don't have any place to sleep, Gavin lamented. I am 50 years old, but I have to go more backwards because all I can do is go and live in the shelters where drugs and stuff makes it rough. The housing situation for people like me with a felony is not there to help anybody. The charge just brings you down and makes you want to go back to doing what you were doing before because really, you can't do anything legal with a felony charge on your record. All you want to do and all I want to do is stay clean and get a safe place to stay so I can live. I need that to have a chance and I don't. I got nothing with my name on it. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Gavin and many other ex-offenders are direct casualties not only of decades of political rhetoric that permanently casts drugs, crime, poverty, racial minorities, and public housing as synonymous terms, but also to the laws that politicians designed to socially disable and exclude those who fell into any of those categories. Whether deliberately or apathetically deployed, the laws and policies that feed the prison industrial complex exacerbate existing and create new social disabilities. However, in addition to recidivism, homelessness, joblessness, physical and mental illness, addictions and other public health problems, the missed and ruined opportunities for healthy black love, coupling and marriage to thrive, and anchors black families and communities must be counted among the social disabilities impacting African descendants in America today. Studies from the late 1980s to the present reveal that many incarcerated black men's worst fears of spousal alienation after release do materialize even if their marriages don't terminate in divorce. They know better than any person that the prison industrial complex is a foe to black love and marriage because it separates and taxes the finances of black couples. But beyond these piecemeal assaults, it destroys hope. It smothers the fires of love and forecloses opportunities for actual rehabilitation when black men are released from prison. Since the 1980s, the new Jim Crow has engineered an inferior and impotent caste of black men, barred from fully obtaining and exercising citizenship rights and responsibilities. Similar to the old Jim Crow, it has provided structural niches for American ways of life that exploit and discard black people, 
and in the process, deny them the comforts of love and marriage on their own terms, leaving in particular millions of black women hopelessly single or saddled with undesirable and toxic relationships. The new Jim Crow is the fulfillment of America's centuries-long investment in forbidding black love. Accenting the fragility of black relationships under the governing authorities of the prison industrial complex, the stories explored in this chapter discloses the crippling reach of mass incarceration into homes and hearts of black women whose partners and husbands remain behind bars. As scholars and activists constantly explain, mass incarceration and its collateral consequences turn innocent and rehabilitatable black men into repeat offenders, overwhelmingly rendering them unemployable, unmarriageable, and undesirable in the eyes of many black women. Researchers have found too that a stable and supportive marriage actually discourages crime, even among men with histories of delinquency. The obligations and expectations that attend marriage and family relations incentivize men to embrace pro-social family roles and curtail their fraternizing with other men whose recreations veer into criminal or antisocial behavior. Other collateral costs of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration's depletion of the black marriage market has led to other troubling outcomes for black women. Social scientists point out that the shortage of black men in some communities has encouraged some men to develop simultaneous relationships with multiple women. Beyond this, black women seeing options disappear before them, lower their standards and lose leverage in relationships they do forge. Black heterosexual men know their value in the age of mass incarceration and they have the luxury to take as much time as they want to settle down. Why rush when there's an unlimited supply of black heterosexual women around to choose from? Not to mention women of other racial ethnic backgrounds. Black heterosexual men marry outside of their ethnic group twice as much as black heterosexual women, further depleting the pool of available black men for most black single heterosexual women who, as the data shows, overwhelmingly choose to marry black men. But let me tell you something that is changing and as that changes black there are some black men who are irate about it on the other hand you have to look at the circumstances that have been set up to make sure both of you never come together this is where we are undeniably some black women have transgressed prison gates to find acceptable men for love and marriage this was not exactly Shanita Hubbard's situation, but with no preparation, she did end up sharing her love with a black man through prison bars. One day, Hubbard's fiance did not come home as expected. He had been arrested for a crime committed long before their first encounter. His subsequent indictment, prosecution, and five-year sentence incarcerated Hubbard every bit as surely in what she calls a prison of shame. Hiding her fiance's fate from her middle-class circles of family, friends, and colleagues, she dodged questions about his absence and their prolonged engagement. How exactly was I supposed to tell them? Was I supposed to squeeze it in between talks about intersectionality? 
Would it have made a great small talk in the car on the way to pick up one of their husbands from yet another business trip? Or maybe when we had our yearly college homecoming, I could have spilled the beans in between party walking and pretending I could still step like an undergrad. A professional with advanced degrees, Hubbard didn't think she was the typical face of the woman who secretly spends weekends taking long distance trips to see her fiance through a glass. Eventually, Hubbard revealed some details about his arrest to close relatives and friends. In disbelief, they queried, why would this beautiful, young, educated woman place her life on hold for a man behind bars? Before I could provide a real answer and not just a response designed to silence them, I had to own my truth. My truth was that I stayed because I loved him. But whether Shanita Hubbard's love will be enough to survive the impositions of the carceral state is still unknown. The testimonies of black women throughout this chapter confirmed something my mother said that cut right into the center of the love I had been enjoying with the man who had become my current husband. When he, when he met my parents for the first time and conveyed his plan to move from a foreign country to marry and start a new life with me in America, my mother responded that sometimes love is not enough. My mother's admonition was not a callous attempt to throw cold water on my intended's noble plans. She wanted to be sure that he had thought carefully about the perils of transitioning to an unknown territory where he would have to learn a new language and launch a new career as a middle-aged man. For proof that love is indeed not always enough, we need only to look to the experiences of black women who have struggled, but by no fault of their own, failed to transcend incarceration in pursuit of love. The vicissitudes of life under normal circumstances are enough to derail what a woman believes to be her unadulterated love for her husband and vice versa. Add in the Leviathan of the carceral state, and it's no wonder black love and marriage are facing perhaps their darkest days since the first Africans landed on the American shores. While mass incarceration afflicts the poorest and most under-resourced black persons and communities, middle-class blacks are not immune to the effects of the carceral state. Not only are many of their relatives poor and vulnerable to being locked up if they're not already, but middle-class black people are also more likely to find themselves facing probation or incarceration than their white counterparts. Increasingly, middle-class black women such as Shanita Hubbard and Asha Bundele are marrying or making plans to marry black men before, during, and after incarceration. If black male imprisonment continues at disproportionate rates, more and more black women will fall in love and marry some of these men. Thus, when Michelle Alexander writes that, quote, mass incarceration is metaphorically the new Jim Crow, and that all those who care about social justice should fully commit themselves to dismantling the new racial caste system, I would add that mass incarceration is the newest battleground in America's war on African-American marriage. Moreover, all who care about social justice must commit themselves to ending this war for the sake of black women, black men, black children, and the health of this nation. Even at a time when the state is sponsoring official initiatives in support of healthy marriage among poor and dependent populations, mass incarceration is far more powerful and effective in preventing and dismantling black marriage than government programs launched to promote marriage. This is because the state is more preoccupied with controlling black men than it is with rendering them marriageable. And make no mistake about it, 
The state is no hopeless romantic actor behind the scenes. No different from its position in the immediate decades after slavery, where the state today seems willing to invest in black marriage, its first priority is to alleviate its responsibility to subsidize the poor. And that includes black women and children who are in need of public assistance. Once married in the eyes of the state, it is a black man's patriarchal obligation to support their wives and children, no matter how poor or jobless or homeless they may be. I'm gonna stop there because I know that was a lot. We are coming in to the close of this chapter. There's quite a bit more. All right. Black love and captivity. I know that was a lot for you to think about, but I hope that as a people, we wake up to some real realities as to what is happening in our country and why our communities are being eroded in the way that they are. And it is systemic and it is intentional. People often ask the question, what is racism? Racism is prejudice plus power And I've decided that I think we need to add another part to that. Racism equals prejudice plus power plus policy that enforces the power and the prejudice. I'll say it one more time. Racism is prejudice plus power plus the policies that enforce the power and the prejudice. So thank you for allowing me to share this read with you today. Thank you for tuning in and listening. And uh, I see uh, Pastor Lockett is going to come and join us and share his thoughts on the reading for today. If you are listening by anchor, I want to thank you again for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Make a difference by your vote. Make a difference by being involved and engaged in the political processes. Because the more we disengage, the more they say, hey, we get to continue to write policies that disadvantage you and your children and your families into the future, into perpetuity. So we can complain about the process or we can engage in the process to at least throw something in the spoke of the wheel that we see. Thank you for tuning in. Take care and God bless.